welcome to the UCD Scholars Off The Page podcast. My name is PJ Matthews. In this series, we invite leading academics to read extracts from their recently published work. Today, I'm joined by Declan Kybert, who will read from his latest book on James Joyce called Ulysses and Us, which is published by Faber and Faber. Declan Kybert is Professor of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at University College Dublin. He's the author of many widely acclaimed books, including Inventing Ireland, Irish Classics, and The Irish Writer and the World. The Long Day Fades Although Leopold Bloom works as an ad canvasser, he would like a job as an agony uncle on a newspaper. Dear Mr Editor, what is a good cure for flatulence? I'd like that part. You'd learn a lot teaching others. That reminds us of a comment made by Stephen Dedalus to Mr. Deasy at the beginning of the book, that he can't be a teacher because he still wants to be a learner. Bloom is in many ways a corrected version of Stephen, and he often gets right what the young man got wrong. Stephen was hydrophobe, but Bloom loves water for its democratic quality, its ability to find its own level. Stephen is on a kind of hunger strike, but Bloom treats food almost as a sacramental. And Joyce, of course, believed that how a person eats an egg would tell you a lot more about their philosophy than how they go to war or how they do anything else. At the start of Ulysses, Stephen is depressed, out of sorts in the morning. He is one of Dante's damned. The truly damned are those who are happy in hell and who repeat the same dire motions over and over and over. There is a quality of immobilisation in his life, inactivity leading to melancholy, melancholy to more inactivity. And the first truly extended interior monologue in the Proteus chapter suggests that there is something pathological about the intensified level of thought given in every detail. Bloom, of course, will have his own monologues and a version of the same problem, but in his case he uses monologue to register shock and to sort through the insult of the actual. I remember my father once saying to me when he listened to the Daedalus monologue, do you not think it might be better not to have quite so rich an inner life? And certainly the intensity of all the monologues through Ulysses is perhaps possible only in a culture of repression. The poverty of dialogue in the book seems intimately connected with the richness of the interior monologues. And of course, Stephen is a dire example of this because throughout Ulysses, he says either too little or too much. When he acts as a teacher or a guru, he often lapses into mere performance, as in the school at Dorky, as when he gives his parable of the plums, or in the library when he offers a theory of Hamlet. After the middle of the book, Stephen gets drunk, and he remains drunk through many of its chapters and then simply hung over. The book itself, of course, is drunk in the Circe episode, which is hardly the exercise in realism that Joyce claimed. More a proof, I believe, that the interior monologue, far from achieving candour, is often filled with repression, denial and self-deception. The Circe episode is filled with monstrosity and hallucination, perhaps to make the rest of the book seem more real. But the climax of Ulysses is truly there, not in the later meetings described in Eumaeus and Ithaca, but in that moment when Bloom and Stephen look into a mirror and see reflected back at them the image of a paralysed Shakespeare. In the Scylla and Charybdis library chapter, 
Stephen adopted the Victorian Bradley-esque approach of seeking wisdom in great literature. He wanted Shakespeare's text to solve the problem of his father with the theory of Hamlet. And of course, in the end, Stephen is not helped. His theory fails because it relies on both the Socratic and scholastic methods of his education in Belvedere and UCD. Bloom in Ithaca also turns to Shakespeare to solve real and imagined problems, often with imperfect results. But it's interesting that both men have a rather Victorian view of literature as a depository of potential wisdom. I think this means it's important then to ask what exactly is Ulysses saying? And I think that Joyce wanted to teach us how to live. The book offers many kinds of wisdom, how to tell a joke, how not to tell a joke, how to confront death in the age of its denial, how to eat food, how to manage it, how to purge sex of possessiveness. Um, Joyce wants to rescue intellectuals from their self-imposed exile in Bohemia. The whole of Ireland for the young Joyce was a kind of compulsory Bohemia, with young men and women in a holding pattern up to the age of 30. Um, Stephen, of course, creates with his friend Mulligan such a Bohemia in the Tower. It's interesting that when Joyce finally reached Paris, he shunned Montmartre and Montparnasse and saw these Bohemias as a sphere of sublimation, a bit like Nighttown in Ulysses. Um, and when a person came up to him and said, Mr. Joyce, may I kiss the hand that wrote Ulysses? He said, no, that hand has done a lot of other things as well. That seems to me implicit in the meeting between Bloom and Stephen at the climax. The young Stephen suffers from a bohemian illusion of the 1890s, that what passes for life now remains only in the more elite forms of art. This is based on a contempt for the everyday, rooted in figures like Baudelaire, Flaubert and the French writers of the 19th century, who felt that everyday life had become meaningless and that ordinary people suffered from a numbness so great they didn't even know they were numb. For Joyce, World War I arose from a disillusion with the ordinary life and the everyday, and the newspapers of the time offered no solution, simply a different kind of search for sensation. But the meeting between Bloom and Stephen at the end is meant to reinstate the everyday as the primary category of experience. Bloom cheerfully explains pragmatic details, why, for instance, chairs are stacked up in cafes at the day's end. But he also illustrates, by the quality of his personality, uh, by his way of being in the world, what wisdom might be. And he says that if Stephen holds on to him, he will feel a new man. Um, this moment is rare in the history of modernism. A poet and a citizen, a bohemian and a businessman, making common cause. They do p talk past each other in many of the episodes in the scene, and yet somehow they do connect, even if the relationship lacks a final traction. The amazing thing is it's happening at all, an encounter with the un unexpected, an encounter with the other. Bloom offers Stephen a coffee and a bread roll in a kind of secular Eucharist, the same Bloom who had earlier laughed at the old ladies receiving communion in All Hallows Church. Joyce was very upset to hear that his favourite aunt, Josephine Murray, who had helped him in so many ways, disapproved of Ulysses. She put it away in a press and later had it removed from her house. If Ulysses isn't fit to read, its author responded, then life isn't fit to live. 
In saying as much, he was thinking of it not just as an honest imitation of life, but as a celebration of the minutiae of any given day. Yet, by offering different schemas to men like Carlo Lenati and Stuart Gilbert, he may unwittingly have impoverished future interpretations of his book. It became a text to be deciphered, not read. Henceforth, scholars would work, scoffed Leo Bersani, with a kind of affectless busyness, within those rigid grids which the author had laid down. They would elucidate textual references, rather than face the more challenging question of what Joyce was actually saying. But the very works with which Joyce asked for his to be compared all dealt with the same question, how are we to live? He knew that in order to be original in his answers, he would have to go right back to the origins of world culture. In the Odyssey, Homer presented the hero's voyage as the journey of a soul in the process of discovering itself. In the New Testament, Jesus said that such a person in formation would have to leave father, mother and family in the act of individuation, knowing the sadness of exile before the joy of a renewed community. In the Divine Comedy, Dante demonstrated the path back from depression to serenity. And in Hamlet, Shakespeare showed how a special providence shaped human ends, despite the accidents which frustrate us. These are all seen as works of wisdom literature. And Joyce placed his own book in this series of texts, which taught people how to live. In Elizabethan times, Stephen jokes, Shakespeare's were as common as Murphy's. It is the ordinariness of life, the everyday quality of his lived wisdom, which attracted Joyce to such classic works and made him want to add one of his own. Some previous writers, like Dickens, had escaped the ordinary by resorting to melodrama. Others had heaped scorn on the dullness of everyday life, treating ordinary people as similar to the buffoons of old-fashioned comedy. Joyce, on the contrary, wanted only to capture the poetry of the everyday. He was also aware that the ancient classics contained much old-world lore, now lost to modern people, but which he hoped to restore. That lore was buried in the human psyche, as fragments of those thoughts which had been rejected in the dogmatic forms taken by most religions, but which could still be reactivated as wisdom. At their first meeting, Joyce said to Yeats that he owed nothing to anything but his own mind, which was nearer to God than to folklore. I think that overstated Joyce's independence of Gaelic lore and of the classics I've just mentioned, but it wasn't wholly wrong. At the start of Ulysses, Stephen suffers from a self-inflicted wound. He is lonely, depressed, melancholy, mainly because, like so many intellectuals of the 1890s, he has chosen art over life. He has done that in the conviction that in an industrial mass society, what life now survives, survives only in elite art. Stephen's inwardness is brave, even audacious, but it leaves him disconnected from the everyday. Overdeveloped in intellect, he is underdeveloped in the life of the emotions. His learning, which has intimidated too many readers of Ulysses, is probably his greatest liability, for it constantly comes between him and the life he might live. At various moments of the day, but especially in Circe, he will have to confront many unclaimed experiences and unlived truths, which he has repressed for far too long. He must grasp life through the flow of actual experience rather than through academic concepts. It isn't the reader of Ulysses who needs to be more educated to understand all of Stephen's references, but Stephen who needs to be a lot less learned. Culture sometimes consists not in acquiring opinions, 
but in getting rid of them. The way out of hell, as Dante observed, lies at its dead centre. Stephen wants to escape his pain, as any sensible person would, but first he must fully live through his own desolation in all its raw immediacy. He gets drunk in search of an elation which might allow him to forget, if not escape, his depression. But he needs to go right through the depressed state if he is to remove all its poisons. Only when he sees that his problems are linked to those of all humanity will his pain begin to lose some of its sting. The dreams and the nightmares which trouble his unquiet sleep are those repressed parts of himself, especially his relationship with his mother. They erupt again in the night world of Circe, asking to be lived out and redeemed. Like Joyce, Stephen is intrepid and brave enough to dive down into the unconscious, to bring into awareness all that has been lost or denied. Genius, as Yeats once said, is a crisis which joins our buried self to our everyday mind. That is why Joyce is so obsessed with the Catholic ritual of Holy Saturday. The Paschal candle lit in the darkened church is an image of lost consciousness finally coming back into everyday recognition. The resurrection of Jesus from the tomb on Easter Sunday is scarcely more miraculous than the fact that every morning the sleeper who has abandoned himself to darkness awakens to a new world. Stephen's interest in the early fathers of the Christian Church and in the occult lore of Neoplatonic tradition resonates with his sense that a new self can be born for him if he has the courage to accept psychic change. Much will be left behind so that this new person can be born. The need is not to fixate on either the unhappy past or uncertain future, but simply to let things happen. His problems are, nonetheless, acute. Life has been reduced to a sense of knack ein ander, one damn thing after another, without order or design. Meaningful experience has been displaced by random sensation. The interior monologue is the perfect medium for registering this impasse, for it really is a study of the passive nervous system, the sensitive soul in pain registering constant shocks. Its focus is even more on personal response than on the actions and events which are responded to. Joyce shows Stephen's overload in the third episode, Proteus, before proceeding to depict in Bloom an older man who copes rather better with the problem of an unhappy consciousness. But even Bloom feels besieged. And so Ulysses, in due course, moves from a study of the frustrations of Stephen and Bloom to a consideration of those social forces which block their full self-expression. That will also involve probing the languages of professional discourse, the subconscious, and the information overloads of modern life. Joyce's project was indeed to rejoin the sacred to the everyday. Whenever he heard intellectuals using pretentious phrases, he said, Don't you wish they talk about turnips? The official churches had made the same terrible error as the writers of modern literature. They had removed their special activities from the practice of everyday life. Only mystics and Gnostics still believed in such a reconciliation at the level of religious practice. Along with the Surrealists of Paris, Joyce was one of the few major figures committed to it in art. The wisdom at the origin of human culture in such figures as Homer, rather than fixating upon mankind, saw the person as part of the continuum of life between gods and spirits on the one side and animals and plants on the other. Rejecting the idea of a text, the devotees of mystical knowledge preferred voices, 
which encourage subjects to see themselves outside their historical moment. For instance, to make Odysseus walk again in contemporary Dublin streets. They tried to fill the gaps in knowledge left by the creedal dogmas of the major religious traditions. In his abjection, Stephen has to pass through a fallen world of sin and error. What Joyce found in the art and life of Oscar Wilde was the same truth recorded by William Blake. People are educated by their sins, and they must learn first how to go wrong in order later to go right. Only in that way could the actual everyday be re-enchanted. The mistake made by the generation of 1914 was the same one made by the followers of fantasiac art. Their pursuit of extreme situations was too knowing. Not only did that devalue the middle range of experience, but it was too programmatic by far. Better to be overtaken by an experience to learn how to watch and how to wait. Stephen tries to live as if life itself could be a work of art, but Bloom offers a humbler sort of art that captures the wisdom of life. Stephen's over-intense programme leads to a terrified recoil from the body, so different from Bloom's acceptance of the flawed human form. Many readers recoiled similarly from the frankness of Ulysses, which Joyce jokingly linked to the Bible as two books which no proper Catholic could ever be allowed to read. As Walter Benjamin noted, a conviction emerged after World War I that experience was no longer communicable in stories of good counsel. People now had mere sensations, and as one vibration replaced another, none was worked through to a conclusion. The search of high modernism for moments of joy and abasement proved no more meaningful a resolution of this problem than did the trenches of 1914 to 1918. But Ulysses offered an answer by reconnecting elite art and everyday living, because it arose from the pressure of a felt experience. Modern living had been devalued by gloomy intellectuals who failed to appreciate just how intelligent, cheerful and resourceful people were in their daily lives and daily jobs. Yet Bloom shows himself skilled in both the conceptual and the selling techniques of, of advertising, devising the logo of the crossed keys and outlining its underlying psychology. A practice stroller, he also illustrates how people can use the city's newspapers, hoardings and handbills as a way of negotiating the urban maze. The blend of theory and practice which he calls upon to instruct Stephen is based on a firm conviction that experience and intellect are not opposites. That everybody thinks about the meaning of what happens to them some of the time, and that nobody can afford to think about it all of the time. Bloom constantly compares life to a stream, to a flow of things. That stream can never be fully grasped, just experienced. For to analyse it fully, it would be necessary first of all to stop the flow. Happiness can be felt but never really described, though it can sometimes be prolonged by a deferral of gratification. In sexual love, only the couple themselves, Odysseus and Penelope, Leopold and Molly, can feel such contentment, while the only paradise people can actually know in an analytic way is the one they have already lost. Nevertheless, Joyce insists that the life of the individual is far more important than major political events in the world. Even revolutions are generated by new thoughts dreamed up by peasants on some remote hillside. So also, the radical new forms of art 
are created on the edge of things. It is the insights of marginal people that bring grace. The sharing of a bad cup of coffee in a stale bread roll may be a real moment of blessedness. For Bloom, food is sacramental. Unlike other events, eating can be controlled without immodest strain. While the other Dubliners in the book rush their meals, guzzle their meat or talk with their mouths full, Bloom takes care over every culinary detail. At his lunch, he cuts his cheese sandwich into slender strips, and he follows that action with a whole page of personal thoughts before eating it. Ulysses proceeds by the same almost tantric sense of delayed gratification. The lost knowledge of the Gnostics was to be gleaned from those signatures of all things which Stephen wished to read on the landscape of Sandyman Strand. That knowledge, which he rather portentously sought in rocks, sand and sea, is discovered by Bloom to be secreted in objects, in waste, soap, paper, even piss or shit. Some of the magic of the ancient world, expelled from the human mind, can now be found in things. Life's meaning is in the flow of making such discoveries, and in the ability of persons to remember past lives, past flows, by connecting with the wisdom that was always buried deep in the self. Hence Joyce's use of Homer, the Bible, Dante and Shakespeare. Hence also Bloom's ideas on metempsychosis, by which people may remember past lives lived, not just as a person, but maybe as a bird or as a tree. Bloom exemplifies rather than teaches most of these ideas. He embodies far more than he ever explains. For all his literary pretensions, his written work is brief and dire. Like Stephen with his brilliant theory of Shakespeare, Bloom cannot set his wisdom down in the constrained forms of writing. Neither Christ nor Socrates nor Buddha wrote a book, said W.B. Yeats, for to do that is to exchange life for a logical process. The flow of life is captured in oral energies, old saws, proverbs, witty quotations, which stand in marked contrast to the rather stilted forms of the catechism. Ithaca is Joyce's parody of a world in which storytelling has been replaced by mere information. Other episodes mock the ways in which abstract systems have too often become more real for modern people than the very selves on which they're imposed. Joyce shared the common fear that the pace of social change had become so fast that it had left the generations no common ground on which to meet. Instead, horizontal bonding within each generation was the new reality. As Scott Fitzgerald said, an artist writes for the youth of today, the critics of tomorrow and the schoolmasters of ever afterward. Who will attempt to deal with the young people, asked Walter Benjamin, by giving them the benefit of their experience? Bloom's overture to Stephen breaches all the new protocols by drawing the young man into the process of transmission. When he was young, Joyce had tried the reverse trick on a 38-year-old W.B. Yeats, only to conclude that the poet was too old to be helped. But at least he made the attempt to reach across the generations. In the oral transmission of wisdom, errors are an intrinsic and even a useful part of the process. Needing correction and rebuttal, they help to draw others into the debate about where truth may be found. Amidst the comings and the goings of the men in the National Library, Stephen's own attempt at playing the guru misfires. 
but the one-to-one -one exchange set up by Bloom in Eumaeus works far better. Bloom, as an adept, seeks not to impress a crowd, but just to locate one special person to whom to pass his ideas on. The fact that Stephen feels he must leave in the end is also within this wisdom tradition. Zarathustra had said that the individual can experience himself only at the end of his wanderings, as Bloom is now. But Stephen must first of all go away and get to know the world, and find his own identity before he can return. Having rescued Stephen from his depression, Bloom manages also to transform his own domestic situation. He lets the affair between his wife and her concert manager go ahead, because he feels guilty about his own marital shortcomings, for which he needs her forgiveness. Yet Molly's soliloquy shows that Bloom's mention of Stephen as a possible new vocal partner has worked in exactly the way he'd hoped. Compared to Stephen's cultured sensitivity, Boylan is an ignoramus that doesn't know poetry from a cabbage, as Molly says. Molly herself decides to get Turkish clothes, the very sort that animated Bloom's fantasies of a manly wife. And these facts are interpreted astrologically in Ithaca as portending a change in the dynamic of their relationship. Their shared memory of their Hoth Trist gives grounds for hope of a revival in the marriage. From Socrates to Shakespeare, great teachers have had trouble with their wives and sought out the company of young men whom they might more easily impress with their wisdom. But this one at least returns happily enough to home and to hearth. Bloom's responsiveness to the needs of a confused young man is one way through which he can express his attachment to his city and to his community. The labyrinth of streets through which they move might be the maze through which so many have struggled to find wisdom at the centre. The free movement of bodies through city streets reflects the circulation of blood through the human body, and that steady circulation is what keeps a body healthy. Joyce wanted to show that people had nothing to fear from the masses who passed through streets every day. Far from seeing street people as a problem, he saw them as the very basis of a civilization. Each member of the crowd, far from being a barbarian, was like Bloom, a person in search of stimulation, but not too much. Bloom is akin to the man in the Macintosh at Paddy Dignam's funeral, for either could be the 13th mourner. But when he's asked to name the stranger, Bloom cannot do so. Part of his great charm is that he cannot recognise himself, even when he meets himself in others, whether in Odysseus or in the Macintosh man. But meet others he does, and all day long. It is in part because he has a troubled sense of himself that he is prompted to reach out and address the pain of his fellow citizens. But it's also because he enjoys and relishes accidental, unscheduled encounters as the very basis of a civic life. The aim of art is not to depict a set of incidents, for that would be no more than mere information. It's rather to relate each event to the life of a storyteller so that it can be conveyed as lived experience. Ulysses is the work of a storyteller, not a novelist. It is a narrative which uses the streets as a guide to the received wisdom of an entire community. A life so lived finally reveals an order hidden from those caught up in the day-to-day -day accidents of its unfolding. What seemed like random incidents are revealed in the end as part of some foreordained plan. There is a providence in the fall of a sparrow. 
the hairs on our heads are numbered, and the man of genius makes no mistakes because his errors are the portals of discovery. You have been listening to Declan Kybert in this UCD Scholars Off the Page podcast. To hear more podcasts like this, visit www.ucd.ie forward slash scholarcast. <laughs>